On this edition of the 30 Rock Podcast, we take a look back at the classic U2 album, Achtung Baby. They rose up from a nation divided by religious violence and the ashes of punk rock to become one of the biggest bands of the 80s. But by the time 1991 rolled around, the Irish supergroup U2 were on a quest to reinvent themselves. Hello, I'm Liam Renton and this is 30 Rock, the podcast that reckons all the best music comes from 30 years ago. Now, throughout the 80s, U2 had released a number of now classic albums and by the time they dropped the Joshua Tree in 87, the Irish four-piece had established themselves as one of the biggest bands in the world. But with the release of Rattle and Hum in 1988, the band were accused of being pretentious and self-righteous as they explored their influences in American blues and roots music. It was a sharp fall from grace after the monumental success of the Joshua Tree. With the fall of the Berlin Wall and the dawn of a new decade, U2 set up camp in Berlin with producers Daniel Lanois and Brian Eno, who'd been at the helm of the Joshua Tree. I don't remember it being any easier or any harder than any other U2 record we worked on. What was different about it was uh, we were determined to mix uh, flesh and machine. You two have made plenty of, of recordings where it's just a band in the room and only flesh. But this time it was going to be flesh and machine. So everything was driven by fixed tempo. So there was a, a very fundamental difference that we were operating by. I remember some lovely things came in, coming out of Hansa. You know, there's a, a track called You're So Cruel. Check out the groove on them. And that's one of the greats. It was here that the seeds were planted for what would become Uptung Baby, with the band taking on influences from industrial and alternative music, as well as the European house and dance music scene. Despite the obvious German connections, the Berlin sessions lasted for only two months before the band returned to Ireland, recording for six months in a rented house in Dorkey, a seaside suburb of Dublin. When the music video for the lead single, The Fly, dropped in October 1991, it was crystal clear that 90s U2 were going to be very different from 80s U2, with the band's reinvention going beyond just the music. Lead singer Bono now swaggered on screen and on stage with a new alter ego, The Fly, his take on the egotistical rock star. In the media, you know, we had read reports of, of megalomania and the like in the 80s when I thought we were very humble. <laughs> but uh, so I thought, well, okay, let's, let's run with this megalomania thing. Let's see if we can have some fun with it. I get to play out that side of myself that probably wants to be a rock and roll star. You get into bands for all the wrong reasons. You know, you get into bands just to kind of just go, yeah, you know, and there is that aspect of rock and roll and that enjoys the, uh, the pure surface of things. That was Bono talking to Rolling Stone in 1993. Achtung Baby would go on to top the Billboard album charts, earn the group a Grammy Award and rack up a whopping 18 million copies in sales. It would also give birth to the Zoo TV Tour, a rock spectacle on a scale that no one had seen before. 
To deep dive Aktung Baby a little more, I'm joined by 30 Rock's resident rock historian, Justin Rulon. Take us back, Justin, 1991, this album for you 2 fans. Was it as impressive as the stuff they'd done earlier? Well, it was a complete reinvention, wasn't it? Like, you had Bono coming out as the fly. You had this sort of crazy sound um, that was unlike anything they'd done before. Um, you know, when they dropped the video for The Fly on MTV, everyone just lost it. You know, you can remember. It was just so different. Yeah, some of the big anthems they had of the 80s seemed to have gone by the wayside just with that even metallic electronic sound they were coming out with, didn't they? Yeah, and I remember picking up the album on cassette in uh, 1991 and just popping it in the Walkman for the first time. And Zoo Station's the first track off the album. And it's just a nasty guitar sound from the edge. It's just a really overdriven and nasty sound. I'm like, wow, what is this? This is totally different to that sort of, that streets have no name, that kind of chimey guitar sound that the edge was really famous for. It's totally different. What was the vibe like when the album came out? Were fans happy with the change? Because it definitely was a change in sound for the band. Yeah, well, I think uh, I think the fans were pretty happy with the metamorphosis, I guess, is a, a good way to put it. But um, critics had pretty much slammed Rattle and Hum, like almost universally. And so it was almost like, you know, Bono becoming the fly and this kind of over-the-top rock star. He's kind of saying to the media, well, if you're going to have a go at me for being a rock star, well then, hey, I'll be a rock star. The interesting thing was his reinvention. So he's come out as this alter ego. What do you reckon was going on behind the scenes for him to say, oh, yeah, I'm not Bono anymore, this is the fly. Like, why would he do such a thing, do you reckon? I think it might have just been a bit of a, you know, um, raise the middle finger to the, the people who kind of slagged him off. Maybe it was just always kind of bubbling there under the surface because they had been pretty well the biggest band in the 80s. You know, played Live Aid, they'd done all that stuff. Um, I guess they just wanted to do something new. Bono has actually talked about um, that you 2 were very close to breaking up at this point and Aktung Baby was actually the album that saved them. I wonder if the reinvention and, and this new alter ego he took on was his way of not only hiding from the world, but making himself two different characters. So the rock star could be the fly, yet he could go home to wherever it was in Ireland and just be mm. Bono. Yeah. And it was just that larger-than-life thing, wasn't it? Like uh, the Zoo TV tour, you know, it was just over the top, like everything was over the top. It was almost like their answer to like glam metal in the 80s and like, okay, we're going to be over the top now. Some say there was so much change going on in the world. The late 80s was really volatile and they cashed in on the, I guess, the whole change environment. They thought, well, if, where are we going to change? Now's the time. Is that kind of where they were heading? It gave themselves a whole opportunity to sound different, write different types of songs, have a different feel with their instruments that they had never done before? Yeah, well, they certainly dived into, you know, Berlin just after the, you know, the Berlin Wall came down and there was that whole um, air of change. What was the big hit, Winds of Change, mm. that the Scorpions? Scorpions. Great song, but that was the that was the vibe in the air, wasn't it? Um, so they, they, they set up camp in, in um, Berlin and they really just took on a heap of different styles to the music that they'd never really explored before, um, especially that industrial, you know, I'm thinking like Trent Reznor, Nine Inch Nails, that sort of really, that sort of dirty, um, dirty guitar tone that I talked about before. 
What is it about the choice of studio? They've gone to Berlin. They went to a studio where Bowie had recorded many years earlier. Why is, do you reckon that's so important for artists to go to a place where, where greatness has once been created? Hansa is the name of the studio. Um, I think that that particular studio, there had been some big artists go through it like, um, as you said, Bowie, but also Iggy Pop, I think, had recorded there as well. But people like Nick Cave had recorded there. I think it was one of those places where it's a great studio, but off the radar. So it's not your LA, it's not New York, it's not London, it's not like a big a big city. So maybe, you know, they're thinking, let's go to Berlin, let's set up camp here and let's kind of fly under the radar a little bit. It's been done by many bands before in different eras. So we all know that Oasis recorded in the same studio where Queen had once been. And they can, you know, could feel the, the ghosts of songs past when they were recording. Um, Roxette once recorded in the same studio that ABBA once used as well. So it's something the bands have done throughout years. And whether it's the, the desk they use, I mean, we all know that certain sounds come out of certain desks. Maybe that's the vibe they're going for as well. Yeah, well, anyone who's seen the movie Sound City with uh, Dave Grohl, he talks about the desk you know, shaping the sound of Nirvana's Nevermind. So absolutely, the um, you know, even the, just the sound of the room can play a huge sort of, you know, role in the sound. The band were struggling going into the studio recording. They, they did keep some of the old stuff. They kept the same producers they'd used that had made them hits in years ago by. So they weren't changing everything, but they needed a hit that was going to bring them together. Uh, I think the song one, they've credited to saying that was the song that actually held us together. Why were things so rocky for the biggest band in the world that had two massive albums, so many hits in the 80s? How could they have possibly have been ready to break up after only a few years? Yeah, I think, I think that critical backlash from Rattle and Hum really played a role in that. Like, you know, they were the band that could do no wrong for most of the 80s, and then all of a sudden, they're just slammed for this album as being pretentious. And so, I guess that maybe rattled them a little, rattle rattle and hum, that rattled them a little bit. Um, And then they really sort of took a big step back after that tour in 1989, um, and almost retreated to the studio to make Uktung Baby. I'm a little shocked looking back now that critics did pan Rattle and Hum because if you were to say, name me some of the best albums of all time, surely today Rattle and Hum would be in that list. It's, it's looked back on as a good album, but at the time it wasn't seen like that though, was it? Yeah, I think, I think from the critics' point of view, it was them kind of just, you know, not thinking about the fans, doing something for themselves putting stuff out there that wasn't really kind of U2 like when you think about U2 it's kind of like that new wave kind of post-punk sound and then all of a sudden they're doing this very American sort of blues based stuff Um, it was almost a bit like you know well what's going on here let's talk about some of the songs on the album they had three number one hits with one The Fly in Mysterious Ways even better than The Real Thing went to number three Who's Gonna Ride Your Wild Horses at number four so five top five hits on the one album yeah almost unheard of but the lyrics were different this one they had been a real political band these were written personal these songs weren't they definitely in a song like one you know i think of you know stadium uh, ballads you know where everyone's got the old cigarette lighter and waving around and that's got to be up the top now I, i know you're a fan of one and i know you've also gone to say that it's the greatest rock ballad ever written do you still stand by that yeah, I think so. I think so. And I mean, I was there in 93 at the uh, the Brisbane show in Australia. Um, you know, sat up the back in the worst seat in the house. I was 16 years old, first concert ever, Zoo TV. 
And, you know, when they started playing one, it brought the house down. Listen, I'm going to argue this point to you because one, no doubt, was an amazing song. But let me just play some other songs from the exact same year. Rock Ballads. You're telling me that one unbelievable song was bigger and better than November Rain by Guns N' Roses? Yeah, well, <laughs> maybe this is my personal bias coming out, but I was never a Gunners fan. But, I mean, it's a great song, great solo. Uh, you know, if you like your sort of seven, eight-minute-long tracks, it's a great track. No couple of other songs in the year. Everything I Do, I Do It For You was in the charts that year. I think it was the longest-serving number one hit of the year. Another rock classic. The same year, Nothing Else Matters by Metallica. Another stadium anthem and More Than Words by Extreme. More than words. They are, they're all amazing songs that came out in the same year. They're all good, but there's just something about one. There's just something, I think, that's, um, you know, it stood, it stood the test of time. When they toured a few years ago, you know, they're still rocking out one. Yeah. I mean, if a Mary J. Blighter cover it as, as well, it obviously holds a, a spot in people's hearts. Off that album, those songs are so iconic. Do you have a favourite one? I remember when The Fly came out, I remember just being... That was probably my favourite song on the whole album. I think it was the first single as well. And I remember going, this is amazing. Like, I, I actually still to this day listen to The Fly regularly and love it as my favourite song on the album. Yeah, well, I think my favourite's actually not a single. It's uh, Zoo Station, which was the one that really drew me in. I put that tape on, I hit play, mm. and then there was that sound. That really just hooked me. Um... But I think if, 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 I, if I was to pick one of the hits, um, probably Mysterious Ways. Yeah, great song. Yeah, mm. love that one. And, and look, as I said, there are five top five hits on that album. And for me, Who's Gonna Ride Your White Horses is still a, a haunting ballad today that I hear and go, gee, that's a good song. Like, just an underrated hit. Talk about the tour for a second. It basically set the stage for world tours for the next two decades. It was probably the biggest tour of its type that had ever been done worldwide. Oh, absolutely. No one had done one like that Definitely, ever. no, yeah. definitely. Not on that scale. Yeah. I mean, it was huge. I mean, they had um, they had cars hanging from the, you know, the top of the stage. Um, while they'd been in Europe, in sort of Berlin, um, Bono had become quite entranced by these little East German cars called Trabants, famously for, you know, breaking down and just not a really great car came out of sort of communist um, East Germany, but they decorated the stage with these cars just hanging from the rafters, you know. It was wild, like just massive screens. But they were the first band to do the big screens, though, because you yeah. know, most of the time back then, I went to heaps of concerts back then, you'd be lucky if you had a screen. Yeah. Or, or you'd have whatever the venue had at the time. Big stage, big sound, but there wasn't a lot going on apart from maybe a, a no, little light they, show. They, they, really, they really tapped into that um, multimedia um, vibe that everyone's doing now. They were the first one to do it. Um, and just so produced, um, you know, gone with the days of you 2 just rocking up with uh, a couple of instruments mm. and banging out their songs on stage. Now 
it's almost like what's going on behind them is as important as what they're doing on stage. And they were playing along to the big screen. They had stuff yeah. playing at the same time. And, yeah. I, and even Michael Jackson, who came out with his Dangerous Tour three years later, like in 1996, he was only doing it then. Yeah. So they had done it umpteen years earlier. You were at that concert. You were lucky enough to go. Your first gig, what a first concert to go to. And they had this little thing they did back on stage where they really tapped into the, the localness of whatever city they were playing in, didn't they? Yeah, and they'd just call someone famous or maybe not so famous, maybe a B-list sort of celebrity from the city. But at the uh, at the Brisbane concert, they called Alan Border, um, who was the Australian cricket captain of the time. He had a pretty big title at the time, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, he, he was known as Captain Grumpy because yeah. um, he wasn't particularly uh, pleasant to his players on the field. But... Um, yeah, happily to chat to Bono. Uh, what what they used to do was sort of flick through the local TV channels as well. And at one point... On the big screen. On the big screen. So he'd flick through and just see... Like, we only had four stations in, in Brisbane. <laughs> but they'd just flick through. And at one point, he stopped on... There was a game of cricket on. He just stopped and watched the cricket for 30 seconds. And Well, at least, you know, being from Ireland, he would have loved the cricket. So he, he probably even knew who Alan Border was. Yeah, I'm sure but he there'd did. there'd be plenty of celebrities in every city he went to that he might have known. I often think of the production values of that concert and go... Who was going ahead from town to town and going, who's the biggest celebrity? Because Alan Border, even though he was the Australian cricket captain, lived in your city of Brisbane. So this was his hometown. Yeah. Um, you know, they've gone to every other city in Australia and worldwide. Someone had to know who to call, who's the biggest celebrity. There was no internet back then. They had no. to find this out old school style. No, it would have been a great gig, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, your memories of the album itself, one you play regularly, is it in your top few? And why does it still stand out to you today? We talk about 1991 as one of the biggest years for music. It's just across the board, so many great albums, you know, whether it be alternative, and of course we had the alternative boom in 91, um, you know, whether it's pop, whether it's dance, whatever, there's just huge albums everywhere. But I really think that Aktung Baby has really stood the test of time um, and has aged really well in, in some ways that maybe some other U2 releases kind of haven't. It was just that reinvention um, where they said, okay, we're going to completely reinvent ourselves for a new decade, for something new. Um, it still stands up today. Like, you listen to the guitar tones, um, the lyrics. It's, it's a cracking album. They could put that out now, and it would, be, um, it would be amazing. Well, 30 years on, it's still getting played on radio stations today, so it's, it's doing something right. Let's look at some pure numbers alone. Number one in Australia, number one in Canada, number one in New Zealand, number one in the US, but in their own home country... This album only got as high as number two. I was shocked at that. Maybe a bit of uh, tall poppy syndrome happening there in uh, the UK. Yeah, wouldn't let them go to number one. Um, many bands have claimed to have been the biggest band in the world at some stage in their career. I've heard The Police say it. I've heard Bon Jovi say it. I've heard Def Leppard say it. Oasis? Name them. They've all said yeah. it at one point. In 1991, there was a, a period of time there where you could legitimately say you 2 were definitely the biggest band in the world. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And once they hit the road with Zoo TV... Uh, unquestionably the biggest act in the world because that tour went on for you know best part of three years still going three years long that's yeah. a long time it's to a be long away time. from family and friends and they would have made a lot of money on that tour too oh. which set, obviously set them up for life but you imagine being away for that the tours these days are very concise to the point set dates we go home that tour just seemed to go on and on and on, on and on 
years. Let's end this podcast with one of the biggest hits from the album. What's your pick? What do you want to hear from the amazing album that was? What's your favourite song that you want to end the show with? Oh, look, let's go with one of the singles. Um, are we going to argue about this? I reckon The Fly could be a good choice. <laughs> There's no argument from me because I love The Fly as well. You could have played any one of the five hits. I, I do want to say that one is overplayed. They play it everywhere <laughs> okay. I go. It's overplayed. Take your point. Take your point. It's overplayed. Why don't we end with The Fly? Listen, we love bringing this show to you. Uh, tell your friends about the 30 Rock Podcast because we believe if an album's not at least 30 years old, is it really that good? The best albums of all time were released 30 years ago. This is you too. The Fly on the 30 Rock Podcast. It's no secret that the stars are falling from the sky. It's no secret.